The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. During these uncertain times, SunGrow is committed to protecting its employees and continuing to reliably serve its customers around the world. SunGrow has leveraged its extensive network across the U.S. to distribute face masks to communities in need. Learn more about SunGrow's work at www.sungrowpower.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. I am in Boston. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. This week, while the country is distracted by infection rates, deaths, and protests, what else have we been missing? We peek out from behind the quarantine curtain to see what the Trump administration has been up to on the energy front. It's a lot, and it's immensely disruptive. Then we're going to answer your questions. We sourced nearly 200 questions from our recent live show, and we're going to tackle some of them, many of which are really tapped into the news cycle. They include Michael Moore's bad faith trashing of clean energy, one group's attempt to kill solar net metering nationwide, and how the current economic mess is impacting cities, corporates, and oil majors. With me to answer these questions are my two co-hosts. Jigger Shah is in Bethesda, Maryland. He is the president of Generate Capital. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello, hello. How's it going? Good. You know, what is it, week eight of sheltering in place? But, uh, you know, things are looking up. Have we gone back to reflexively just saying good, or are you really good? I am really good. I have to say my son has found a sort of path that is, you know, the new normal for him. He's less uh, frustrated all the time. And so I think things have gotten calmer and better. Catherine, are you really good? Um, no, I'm in a different phase than I was. I think I said I was chill at one point. I'm not as chill. I'm obsessed with food and not with eating food, but just with like, where am I going to get more food for my family? What are we going to eat tonight? What are we going to eat tomorrow night? What are we going to have the next? You know, like, that's all I think about is trying to feed my family. And I think that's what a lot of people are thinking about right now. But that's where I am. I have to say, Catherine, when I go to the grocery store, amazingly, all the Morningstar stuff is out. I know. Right? Everybody's like, become like, daggone vegetarian. What the heck? I know. Like the vegan stuff is gone, but the the beef and the chicken is like right there on the on the shelf. Yeah. So I can picture Catherine like elbowing people out of the way for all the 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 faux chicken nuggets and the the tofurkey. Yeah, it's like a bad time for enlightenment right now, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> well, Catherine is the chair and co-founder of 38 North Solutions. She is there in Arlington, Virginia. Uh, so let's talk about politics and what's going on beyond coronavirus right now. Depending on where you live, the world still feels frozen. Maybe it's thawing, depending on your locality. Here in Massachusetts, it's still pretty frozen. But government does continue. Or in the case of the Trump team, it continues dismantling really key protections on health and the environment. And it's no secret that the Trump administration's energy agenda is unapologetically all in on fossil fuels and on deregulation. That has been the case from day one. But with time running out on the president's current term and the country paralyzed by coronavirus, he's pushing it harder than ever before. So we're going to talk about the consequences and what's happening right now. Before that, I want to turn to something else that happened this week. The Trump administration declared this national emergency over cyber threats to the power grid. Companies are not going to be able to buy transformers and other transmission equipment from any sources officially designated as an untrusted source defined as, quote, where a foreign adversary has an interest. And um, most of those transformers and other equipment are built in China. And presumably this is targeting China. So, Catherine, what is this executive order and what are the consequences? Yeah, so there still needs to be a lot of clarification, and the Department of Energy is holding some webinars to try to do that. But this all stemmed from a worldwide threat assessment that Dan Coates, who was the Director of National Intelligence, issued January of 2019, where they definitely indicated that the grid was one of those places of potential threat um, and national security concerns. A couple of issues with this order is that it is very vague. It does not define who foreign adversaries are. It um, could have implications for anyone who has any sort of 
critical equipment, and we're not 100% sure what the critical equipment is for new or existing projects on the grid. So um, that could be, it's anything greater than or equal to 69 kV, so substation equipment, capacitors, control systems, metering at that level. Um, and so any kind of bulk power system, electrical equipment, and, and any generation facilities that are necessary to maintain transmission reliability. So some of the thought is, like, where does that put energy storage? And are solar and wind projects considered key to reliability? I know that administration has ironically been saying that they aren't reliable. Um, but another sort of mystery is that any kind of bulk power reliability issue is under the jurisdiction of FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, but that agency is not actually listed in this executive order as part of the task force to define this. Um, Department of Energy is the lead and FERC is not part of it. So it's unclear where that is going to go. Um, and national security is not really defined. It's risk of sabotage, catastrophic effects, unacceptable risk. So there are some factors, but it leaves a lot of discretion to the Department of Energy. The effective date is unclear. And all of this is just throwing people into a state of uncertainty. So a lot of the tax equity folks who are negotiating contracts for, you know, grid scale solar and wind projects are nervous because they don't really know what this means. Uh, so we definitely need more clarification. Jigger, uh, what, what, what do you think about the consequences here for renewable energy? Well, we have a lot of projects under construction. I mean, we've determined that it doesn't really affect solar and wind equipment. It may affect the transformers. But, uh, you know, I, I have to say that it's it's just another step in the Trump administration just acting first and thinking later. And it's just in this situation, like this is so big and so disruptive that you would have thought that they would have actually like checked with people first and said, hey, how's this going to affect folks? You know, we all care about security. So my sense is it's probably going to get rolled back in some way and then, you know, tightened up and loosened. And it's also like, I think going to lead to a lot of people just being super anti-Trump in our industry. Our industry is famous for being pretty diverse in terms of our political backgrounds. And I think a lot of folks who are pro-Trump are going to be like, hey, man, you just affected our business. Why is this happening now? I mean, we've known about threats to the power grid for a long time, mostly from Russia, potentially Iran, and potentially China. Um, it, it's it's a wonder why this is occurring at this moment. Does anyone have any sense? So I don't think that Trump is out to get us. Um, I think that he has hired people who are out to get environmental regulations, China, other stuff. And so what happens is, is that you have a confluence of events, right? So like, for instance, when the solar tariffs were issued by the Trump administration, it just happened to be on his desk when he was trying to put tariffs on China. And that was in front of him, along with washing machines. In this case, I think the same thing's true, right? He's figuring out how to lash out on China in, in this coronavirus time. And this happens to be a place where, you know, we actually import a lot of this equipment from China. And so it just happened to be right place, right time. But I don't think he had it out for, you know, um, he, I don't think he cares deeply about electricity bulk, you know, security. And it affects a lot more than just the renewable energy industry, certainly. I also think there's the case of we're in a time when I think that the president feels a lack of control over what's happening. And certainly, you know, we don't have a lot of control over coronavirus, we can react to it, but it's it's difficult right now to have control. And there's certain things you can have control over. And a lot of that is executive action. And so there's probably been a move to look, let's just continue doing our executive actions apace. And a lot of those have to do with tariffs, they're going to put tariffs on transformers, they're, you know, going to continue they, those bifacial solar panels, there's just a lot going on on the executive side that he can continue to work on where he does feel like he's in control. So let's talk about what he is controlling right now on the deregulation front. The list of regulations that the administration is dismantling right now is very long. Dozens and dozens of regulations. Here are some of the top ones. Well, first of all, when the coronavirus crisis actually hit, the EPA put a wholesale stop to environmental regulations. And one former enforcement official said, it is so far beyond any reasonable response, I am totally stunned. They finalized rules that would gut Obama-era efficiency standards for 
cars and trucks, a rule created with math that was so bad that 11 economists wrote an analysis in the journal Science saying that the fundamental flaws and inconsistencies is at odds with basic economic theory and empirical studies. EPA head Andrew Wheeler said the agency would not increase standards on particulate matter, known as PM 2.5, against the recommendation of staff scientists and research showing more than 50,000 people a year are dying from current particulate matter standards. It also comes at this moment in time when new research from Harvard is showing that particulate matter is causing higher coronavirus death rates, which is a partial explanation for why African-Americans are dying at much higher rates from the virus. Meanwhile, the EPA is moving ahead with rollbacks across the board, even without the ability to hold in-person comment sections. So it's denying requests to delay until normal commenting can happen. But it's also simultaneously arguing in court that it needs extensions for crafting legal arguments because of the coronavirus. So, Catherine, um, a lot of work here parsing through all of this. What's what's happening here? Is this the Trump team kind of using coronavirus as a distraction or is this just a normal push at the end of a presidential term to get as much done as possible? Well, this has actually been going on since he was elected. So from the time he was elected until two months after he was sworn in when he issued an executive order that basically targeted 98 different rules that said, this is all that we're going to take down. And it's really been the first administration that's been 100% dedicated to rollback. There is no positive agenda for regulation. Um, I reached out to John Walk at the Natural Resource Defense Council, and he follows all of these things. And he said, we should see this in sort of three stages. The first stage, and remember the transition team before Trump was sworn in, they brought a list of stuff they wanted to get done. And all these rollbacks were on the list for corporations. So the stage one was the first one, one and a half years of the presidency. And there was a frenzy to block and reverse as many Obama actions as soon as they could. And they were really bad at it. They did a lot of administrative law missteps. They, They didn't analyze cases right. They lost they failed repeatedly in court. So they wasted a whole bunch of time doing things really badly. Then the next stage was two or three years in. Um, they did start doing sort of the worker bee phase, which was notice and comment for rulemakings, making a longer process, very much more time consuming. That was when the clean water, the clean power plan, the cafe standards, all of those were kind of in that phase. Now, starting at about 2019, we get to stage three when all of these kind of go into effect. So the the water rule and the cafe, the methane rule is going to be imminent. And the issue now is that there are lawsuits in every single one of these cases from NRDC and others. And since there are lawsuits, most of those will be confronted in court after this administration potentially is over. So certainly into 2021. So it could be if we had a new administration come in, the administration would simply not defend all these new rulemakings that the administration has put forward. So those would just wither and go away. But of course, if the president gets another term, those will be fought out in court. And I would just say one more remark was that the hubris of the political attorneys at EPA is such that when the staff level comes and says, you don't have the record to do this, you don't have a legal standard that we can defend, they just say, we have five votes in the Supreme Court and that's all we need. So that will tell you why McConnell right now is just confirming judges all up and down to make sure that the courts will be on their side as these go forward with lawsuits. So, Jigger, the New York Times, I think, documented 36 regulations that are currently being stripped down at the moment. I listed some of the the big ones. Uh, what to you stands out as the most consequential and impactful on people's lives or on the industry? Well, I'd say that the one that I care the most about are uh, the Clean Water Act rollbacks uh, for the Great Lakes region. I mean, having grown up uh, near the Great Lakes and knowing a lot of those companies and people. I mean, I do think that what I'm generally hopeful for, and I think I've said this in the podcast for many years, is that this stuff can't be duked out by lawyers and you know folks just in Washington. There has to be real angst and anger at the local level, right? Like these steel companies are are putting in cyanide, ammonia, et cetera, into the Great Lakes, right? These are 
there are literally generations of people who use the Great Lakes for pleasure, for fishing, for all sorts of things. And they have to care, right? They have to care that their officials are allowing these corporations to put pollution into the lakes and not get fined, right? None of these companies, U.S. Steel, ArcelorMittal, none of them have gotten fined for any of their violations, which they normally would have. So my hope is that not unlike, you know, the climate change response that we've seen out of mayors and states, is that the general population will start to realize how important these rules really are and start to speak up around how they want to protect their local spaces. Yeah, and I think corporations are going to potentially do the same, the ones that want to do the right thing, um, or are even on track to try to make a transition into a future that they're going to make more money in. So in the CAFE standards, for example, the Obama rule was 5% increase in efficiency every year. Now it's only at 1.5%. But the automakers are saying, like, without regulation, we're going to do two, almost 2.5% better anyway, without regulation. And, and regulation does a few things. One, as Jigger highlighted, is it protects the public. It Data clearly show that regulation is good for the economy, and the benefits far exceed the costs of any of those regulations. But the other thing that it does is it spurs innovation. We work with a lot of innovative companies that have come up with solutions that would really be helpful if you do have regulation for methane, PFAS, other different types of really, really harmful toxins out there that are hurting the environment and hurting human beings. And those innovators are also finding themselves, wait a second, we're U.S. companies trying to innovate. This could help economic growth in addition to helping populations. The other thing it does, to Catherine's point, is basically that it levels a playing field so that the companies who want to be good actors are not put at a disadvantage to the companies that are dumping chemicals and doing things that cost less money. And um, and I think there are many corporate actors who want a level playing field. So Catherine, I want to go back to the legal arguments here. What have you heard about how this will hold up in court? What we've seen is reporting from the New York Times and others showing that staffers within the EPA are slipping language in that could potentially sabotage these rules. We've also seen that the Trump administration is basically just changing the math. And you have a a lot of experts speaking up saying this just does not hold up. So what are the consequences when this actually gets into the courts? What are you hearing? Yeah. So and just so that everybody knows, I'm not an attorney. <laughs> I only talk to attorneys <laughs> when I need to. Um, yeah, I don't I can't speak to what the career staff are doing. The career staff are definitely trying to do their work and trying to, to you know do good analysis and build it on you know legal standards. And the political attorneys will just take that and do whatever they want to to it. So it would not surprise me at all. I would say 12 days before the CAFE regulation was issued, the Office of Management and Budget said there's lack of legal justification for this. <laughs> and so even internally, there is a recognition that there is not legal standing. I think part of the issue is they just they want to get this stuff done. They want to shove it through. They want to tell their supporters that look at all the stuff we've done and then they'll worry about it in the next term or not worry about it when the next administration comes in. The one thing I would say is I I do think that we've covered this before on the podcast, which is that Trump came in with the explicit mandate to roll back uh, things at the EPA. And this is a continuation of what was in Ronald Reagan's policy platform for president, right? And it's what George W. Bush did to eviscerate the Clean Water Act so that fracking could occur unabated, right? And so I think for whatever reason, we feel like this is just, you know, unprecedented, but it's not unprecedented, it's designed. It just happens to be that this president's uh, desire to just trample over the judiciary is the part that I think sets him apart, right? But this is exactly what they've been trying to do for years, right? When Christy Todd Whitman said, well, we should be more reasonable at EPA, she got removed by the George W. Bush administration within a month and replaced by somebody who would actually like eviscerate mining regulations, et cetera. 
more quickly. So I don't think this is unprecedented. It just happens to be that they're more effective. Well, but John Walk did say this was the first time he'd seen 100% roll back. He he thought at least during Bush, it was like maybe 70%. So this has been solely <laughs> dedicated, right? I mean, it was still bad. But this has been in every single agency. So Department of Interior, like the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, they're refusing to extend public comment periods and they're just going forward with that they're going forward with oil and gas drilling lease actions on time so interior is doing this every single agency is singularly focused on making sure they take down remove as much as they can for corporations to continue to do what they want to do i think like in most things with trump right it's really more about the response from the states and the population, right? I think that if this rollback at EPA, um, you know, spurs people to action in ways that that are unprecedented in terms of, you know, population engagement, for instance, you know, now that California is not bound by the Obama compromise on CAFE, they actually can make their rules more strict, which they've already done on electric vehicle mandates uh, as part of their their rules. And there's seven or eight other states that can copy California and and promote more electric vehicles. So in the end, you could see an acceleration to electric vehicles because of the Trump rule. And I think that's true across the country where local jurisdictions can actually impose their own mandates around pollution control, etc., around these steel mills and others, right? Because they absolutely have to have local permits to be able to operate as well. And they may not get those local permits if there's enough anger in the local community. Well, legal minutiae aside, this is clearly one of the most consequential impacts of the upcoming election. Let's take a quick break here to talk about our sponsor, SunGrow. When SunGrow realized the severity of the COVID-19 outbreak, it put together a task force to facilitate quick decision-making in the face of uncertainty. SunGrow prioritized the safety of its employees by investing in measures to protect its factory workers from infection. The company is collaborating closely with suppliers and customers to ensure that it can continue to deliver inverter solutions safely and on schedule to project developers around the world. As a leading supplier of solar inverters in the U.S., SunGrow has leveraged its logistics network across the country to distribute face masks to communities in need and keep the solar market growing. You can learn more about SunGrow at sungrowpower.com. All right, we're going to spend the rest of the show talking about listener questions. And surprise, surprise, our audience was brimming with some really smart questions We've got a spreadsheet full of your queries that came in during our live taping last month. A bunch of you were there, so thanks for being there with us. And we have been sorting through all of your questions. Uh, We had two listener questions on this shadowy move for federal control of net metering. And we also got some questions about Michael Moore's new film and about what we're reading and consuming during the pandemic, plus stuff on how the current crisis impacts corporates and states and cities. So let's see what we can get to here. Let's turn first to Michael Moore's new film, which everyone is talking about. It is called Planet of the Humans, and it is directed by Jeff Gibbs and produced by Michael Moore. And it is a look at the environmental movement, and it is a very cynical look at the environmental movement, basically arguing that we do not have the solutions to address climate change and that the only way to think about climate change is deindustrialization and reducing the population and all the solutions that you know all the environmental groups and business leaders are trying to sell you are not working and we were toying with whether or not to cover this and then we started getting messages from folks including this one from a listener named Rob And he says, I just finished watching Michael Moore's Planet of the Humans and came away from the film deeply disturbed and unclear what to think. I'm a huge fan of the Energy Gang. would love to hear your perspectives on the documentary. I'm currently an MBA candidate and have been planning to pivot into clean tech post-graduation. I'm left questioning whether a career in solar development, for instance, is something that would really leave any positive impact. I appreciate any context or clarity that you can help to provide. This film has 6.5 million views on YouTube. Uh, Leading environmental folks are getting attacked on social media and getting, you know, a lot of hateful emails. So this is having real world consequences. Um, 
Catherine, why don't we just start with what this film tries to do? What is it arguing? And uh, how much of your time did you spend watching it? <laughs> um, <laughs> that's what my reaction is. Oof. So I watched it with my husband. Um, he was the lobbyist on the Beyond Coal campaign. So he had a lot of reactions in real time as we watched it. I mean, my first, when I was watching it, my, my gut reaction was, this is really old stuff. Like the tape, the, the B-roll was like really old. It was from stuff that had been done a long time ago. The people they interviewed were with projects that were very outdated. And yet there were no dates that were listed on the screen. So you didn't really know when it was. I also felt like it was somebody had a bone to pick. It wasn't really like, oh, this is anti-renewables. Like you said, it was more about anti-industrialization, anti-electricity. I don't think Michael Moore wants to turn off the electricity for everybody in Flint, Michigan. But, you know, that's it made it look like there's really no good solution. So I was very unclear about the purpose of this movie. There wasn't a call to action. There were no solutions that were offered. It was just... I could not figure out what they wanted to do other than to yell about it. Jigger, what was this film trying to do in your opinion? Yeah, I think that it was really, you know, some form of primal scream, right? Where <laughs> Who's doing uh, the screaming? <laughs> well, clearly Jeff Gibbs is doing the screaming, I think, in this particular one, although I think he was behind the camera for Michael Moore's other movies. But I think he, you know, just couldn't get his thoughts together. So he was just railing against everybody. Like he didn't really put a coherent uh, narrative around the environmental movement, which, you know, I don't have a lot of love for many of the folks in the environmental movement. I think they've gotten too legal. I think they've lost their way in terms of organizing local people and killing projects locally in favor of trying to kill projects through EPA. He hasn't, he didn't really have a coherent um argument against solar and wind. Um, and the ones that he did have were just so... They weren't even out of date. They were actually just plain wrong in ways that were just laughable. I mean, just a simple Google search with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory would have solved that problem. The one coherent argument that I think he tried to make, which I generally agree with, is that we shouldn't be cutting down virgin trees for biomass production, um, which I get. But I think the big thing he's saying is that we're just not on track to solving this problem. We're not on track to replacing the fossil fuel industry. And it's not a dissimilar argument, although poorly made uh, by Jeff Gibbs, to what Naomi Klein has been saying in her books around the fact that we need a new form of capitalism, that we need a new structure altogether, right? I don't think Jeff Gibbs makes a coherent argument in this film. And so I, I almost feel bad for him because I just think that I think he kind of maybe thought he knew what he was going to say, but then he couldn't actually say it. Right. Well, that that's that's the difference here. He it was a poorly executed film, so full of misinformation. But his starting point is not dissimilar from Naomi Klein or Bill McKibben or Josh Fox, three of three environmental leaders who have come out strongly against this film. Bill McKibben himself was attacked in the film, and we can get into that. Um, but all of them have said that this is a, a bad faith attempt at addressing the issue. But everyone agrees that we still have a lot more to do. And, you know, we can't sort of plug and play into the existing economy and expect to solve climate change. What this film does is start to systematically attack the renewables industry by using data from like 2008 to 2010 about grid integration, about uh, efficiency, about the lifetime of renewable energy products, about the fossil fuels it takes to make these products. And what you see is that all of the data, and there's just been some extraordinarily good uh, debunking of this, is from a completely different era and uh, they made no attempt to reach out to the leading experts who are at the forefront of deploying and monitoring and analyzing this stuff. And so it's just a truly awful piece of journalism. There's no journalism here. It truly is just a bad faith attempt at telling a story. But like many people who come after the clean energy industry, which you know we've had to deal with over time, I don't think the debunking is what it is that we need to be doing. I appreciated all the effort that people put into debunking. But the question is, why do people feel compelled 
to write things like this and to produce things like this when it's clearly wrong and they know it's wrong at the time at which they do it. So I don't think that these guys are such idiots that they don't know how to use Google. So the real question is, why would they even do it? Why would they put their name on it? Why would they associate themselves with it? And, you know, and in the people who are commenting that you guys are right and all this other stuff, my sense is that they really truly feel at a loss around what they can do to solve climate change. And they don't think that the rest of us have actually plotted out a clear plan that they can follow and get behind. Well, they didn't suggest anything like energy efficiency, or they haven't, they didn't go back and try to figure out, well, you know, maybe, you know, that Lowell Mountain Wind project, yeah, there were people who objected to it. But if you interview people now, and I reached out to a bunch of folks in Vermont, they said, look, Lowell has been profiting from that wind plant being there. People like it. I mean, there have always been some people that don't like, you know, ridgeline wind. And there's there there's reason for that. But what are the benefits? And like, what are, what are the projects doing now? And it's kind of like, you can say the stuff didn't work 10 years ago as well as it does now, but at least update it and show what good is coming out of it now. You know, they've thrown, they threw a bunch of stuff that just wasn't true in, a lot of numbers that were wrong. Um, they made scary music with all of these just throwing out a bunch of names of chemicals and elements and and showing extraction without any context of like what is going on now and whether or not you're frustrated like at least get it right and and set it so that you have a baseline for this is why I'm scared I'm still scared we all should be scared about climate change but at least get your facts right yeah well, I mean this was not a take that brought in respected energy experts on what how the energy system is evolving. So let's just finish by bringing this back to Rob. Look, Rob, I love the fact that you are an MBA and you're thinking about getting into this industry. And I appreciate the fact that you watched this and came away with questions. And I will just tell you that if you look at what every major energy expert is saying, the information is outdated and if not outright false. Yeah, listen to the scientists, Rob. They'll get it right. So please walk away knowing that getting into this industry truly will make a difference. I thought Josh Fox's uh, takedown was quite humorous. He said, releasing this on the eve of Earth Day's 50th anniversary is like Bernie Sanders endorsing Donald Trump while chugging hydroxychloroquine. <laughs> <laughs> or Clorox. His whole, his whole take was amazing, by the way, on... The fact that it was all white people. All right, so let's go to the next question. The New England Ratepayers Association has a petition in to FERC to try to change the rules around net metering. And we had a couple folks who asked us what this will mean, how this might move forward. So, Catherine, what is this? What is this petition asking and what could be the impact on one of the most crucial policy supports for solar? Yeah, y'all need to be worried. You really do. I talked to Tyson Slocum from Public Citizen, who has spent a lot of time trying to figure out who NERA is. And they claim to be a ratepayer group. They have mostly been focused in New Hampshire. And there is some evidence that the Sununu family is behind it. Uh, Mark Brown, who has run a bunch of uh, Coke groups in the past, has been sort of their executive director. Um, but the contributions are still not disclosed because of their tax status. It's a 501c4, and you do not have to disclose who contributes in that case. So it's been really hard to, to get a handle on that. They haven't traditionally been nationally focused, but they lost a net metering battle in New Hampshire, so they decided they would just go for it, and they would file a petition for declaratory order before FERC. Now, to file one of these petitions, it costs, FERC charges you a $30,000 filing fee. And, you know, with all of their attorney fees as well, this is costing them a pretty penny to do. So somebody is paying for this. Um, and they've made some really bad legal arguments. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but reading Ari Pesco's rants on Twitter have been really illuminating. I read the petition. It really basically says anything that is put onto the utility grid in the form of an electron, whether it's like a residential home or a corporation, um, is then eventually going to make its way into bulk power and wholesale power market, and it should be treated as such, and FERC has jurisdiction. So what could happen is that, and FERC has already denied the states, uh, NARUC had asked for an extension so they could get all the states together, because lots and lots of states have net metering, um, to try to come up with some 
some good arguments and they ask for a 90 day extension and FERC said, nope, you got 30 days to respond. So that in and of itself, along with some of the other decisions FERC has made recently, uh, make me worry that they could uh, try to grab this jurisdiction from the states. Uh, I hope that's not the case, but I think states, uh, munis, co-ops are going to really need to make strong arguments um, and build the record so that FERC doesn't doesn't rule in Nira's favor. Jager, what do you think of the argument here from the New England Ratepayers Association? Well, the argument's terrible, obviously. <laughs> but I think that the politics of it is that the legal case is extraordinarily weak, right? I mean, this is basically gutting a lot of the work that Pat Woods had done when he was, you know, the FERC chair under under George W. Bush. And so, like, I in general... I can't imagine this actually, you know, surviving a legal challenge, but everyone I've talked to from Sunrun to CIA to others are taking this very seriously and are, you know, pulling out the stops to make sure that, you know, everyone from NRECA to Nehruk to others, you know, can get their comments in and weigh in. So, you know, my sense is we should take it seriously, but that... um, this really is a weak argument. Yeah, one of the things that uh, Public Citizen is doing is they're trying to get the Massachusetts Attorney General, who has intervened in the proceeding, because Nero was set up and incorporated in Boston to try to do an investigation and call the entire organization into question. So um, broaden the fight a little bit more and have Attorney General's way in. I think that would be helpful. And I just am very worried that given some of the FERC decisions recently that also were not necessarily based on sound legal argument or argument that you would typically see based on precedent and based on building the record that I worry that something bad could come of this. So Jigger, let's like think through the implementation of this policy if it ever came into fruition. What would it mean for compensation for solar systems? Presumably it would be like what you have for utility scale systems now under PURPA, which is that you get paid for the avoided cost of building an equivalent fossil fuel power plant. How would you apply that to rooftop solar? And would you actually have to install new kinds of meters to account for that? No, I think what would be more likely is that people would go off grid a la Rocky Mountain Institute, right? That ultimately that if if you basically told customers who have spent their hard-earned money or signed up to a loan that they should F off they will probably do exactly the same to their utility and they'll tell them to F off, right? Like, I don't I don't think this ends well, right? You're talking about like over a million, 1.5 million people who have residential solar and you're, and it's expanding every day, right? Last year was a record year with 2.8 gigawatts of residential solar deployed and the, you know, asset-backed securities market is thriving and well. So now you're basically pissing off all of Wall Street. You're pissing off all the big four accounting firms. You're pissing off all the law firms in the middle. You're pissing off the entire establishment because like some shady group, you know, that's associated with the Sununus in the Northeast actually hate renewable energy. I like my sense is, is that this ends really badly for FERC, and that if they overstep this way, you would basically see riots. Well, what is that accountability mechanism, Catherine, if there was anger? They would just burn it down. I don't know what it is (laughs) that you think. No, no, but I don't think you understand what happens. In Idaho, when the Public Service Commission said, we are going to retroactively take away net metering, you had all 115 people that had net metering, who were generally old people, come in and actually protest the Public Service Commission. They were so afraid of these these old people, that the public service commissioners were actually crying on the dais. And when you read their actual order, they were embarrassed that Idaho Power was actually even asking for this, right? Like, this is how personal it gets. I think for whatever reason, we're all inoculated with our high salaried incomes and whatever else. For most people who have solar systems, they have an average income of $52,000 a year, right? You're not talking about wealthy people that have solar systems. They're doing this to save money for their families so they can actually save money for other purposes. And when the FERC actually gets in between them and their ability to use electricity, right? People get emotional. Yeah, and honestly, states would not want for even even states that don't have net metering or don't like net metering, those regulatory commissions still don't want FERC to assert jurisdiction on the distribution side. They just don't. I mean, it's it's something that is sacred to states, and I think that in and of itself is going to, you know, is going to prevent 
bad things from happening in the end. You have conservative talk radio hosts in Georgia that are basically like, you won't take away my guns or my solar system to Georgia power. Like, I honestly think that people like sanitize this stuff. If you decided to upend the economic partnership that has been in place for 20 years, people would just go stark raving mad. Hmm. I'm just saying, put yourself in a situation where your utility company comes to you and says, instead of saving $12 a month, based on net metering, you now have to pay us, you know, something on the order of like 40 bucks a month. For the privilege. And we are going to basically damage and penalize your relationship with your, with Wall Street, with Sunrun, with all the players that you thought you had a good faith agreement with. Right. Right. You would just be like, what the hell is going on around here? I think, and most of these people are Republicans. It's not like Democrats are the ones putting in the solar. They're the ones like talking about solar on Twitter. But it's the Republicans that are doing the like good faith analysis saying, I actually want to save money on my electricity bill. We have a couple other questions here from listeners about what localities should do to promote clean energy in response to coronavirus, post-coronavirus economic development. Um, so one listener says, with anticipated low interest rates, what should cities, local governments, and others do to spur clean energy and resiliency in their region? Another asks, what would state commissions do to make their priority uh, enablement of, of uh, climate-friendly recoveries? So, um, Jigger, any thoughts on what the best course of action here is, given low interest rates at the moment? Well, I think there's a couple step process here. I think initially there are many, many, many jurisdictions, you know, over a thousand who have existing relationships with energy service companies, including us. And so we are accelerating deployments in places where construction is still um, essential services. We are accelerating energy efficiency. We're accelerating solar deployment, on particularly on schools and on city buildings, because um, a lot of them are empty. And so you actually have a better ability. So New York City and Tampa Bay, Florida and Cincinnati, in places where we have contracts, we're accelerating. And I don't think a lot of other folks are too. And so that's what's happening during COVID. I think post-COVID, I think you're going to see a tremendous push to use the low cost of capital that's available to get rid of deferred maintenance, right? There's billions and billions and billions of dollars of deferred maintenance, right? Old uh, HVAC systems that need upgrading, you know, old windows, figuring out energy management systems. And so I think you will see a tremendous amount of work done there, primarily because the ecosystem's in place, right? They already have partnerships with ESCOs. They already know train and carrier. They actually know what they have to do. They just couldn't get around to it. But given that they're going to have 20% unemployment rates, probably for, you know, a good 18 to 20 months, um, they're like, you know, they're saying, hey, how do we put people back to work? And so I think you're going to see a lot of stuff there. The part that I'm working the most on right now is on waste, because I do think that we're really far behind on waste right now. And there's a lot of good solutions. It's just that the ecosystem is not mature. And so a lot of these mayors and county commissioners are hearing the pitches for the first time, um, whereas for energy efficiency and renewables, they've heard it for the 20th time. Waste meaning like anaerobic digestion or waste management? Garbage. Waste management. Just garbage. Like, for instance, like San Francisco is collecting all your recyclables and throwing it directly in the landfill because China right. was, won't take them anymore. So there's all these new technologies, actually not so new, where you can turn the recyclables back into plastic uh, pellets for and Procter and Gamble to use and all these other things, but none of that infrastructure has been built out. And so, you know, folks are sorting, but like nothing is happening on the recycling side because the infrastructure is not in place to turn it back into the circular economy. Plasma waste recycling. That was my top 2018 pick for the decarbonization draft. <laughs> and nobody believed me, but I hear it, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> I don't know if that specific one is coming, but I do think that many others uh, could be coming. So a little aside here, Jigger, we had another listener this week reach out via Twitter and ask about the new ASHRAE guidelines for servicing and inspecting HVAC systems in commercial buildings because of coronavirus. And I wonder if you have all these you know, buildings that now need to inspect, service, or replace HVAC systems does that A, cause problems for service agreements, and B, does it present a workforce opportunity where you suddenly have all this new activity in um, you know, the HVAC efficiency sector? 
Yeah, the other thing, though, is remember EPA, you know, with all of its faults, is enforcing leaks from from refrigerants out of HVAC systems. So they assessed huge fines on Aldi and many other grocery store chains. And so a lot of these HVAC systems are genuinely leaking refrigerant, and they haven't been inspected regularly enough to figure out what to do about it. And so, so one, I think the inspections will increase because people don't want to get fined. And two, I think you're going to see a lot of movement towards green refrigerants, because that's the only way to really just solve your exposure to these fines. So back to this local front, Catherine, this other listener asks about state commissions. How do they make it their priority to enable a climate-friendly recovery? How do they, you know, balance low electricity rates against job creation in like microgrid, solar plus storage, new pilots? So any thoughts on state commissions in particular? Yeah, so the good news is distributed energy resources are cheaper than building natural gas plants, and they're more resilient. So I think they have good arguments in in those cases. Um, a couple things I was thinking of is, you know, they need better modeling tools to really understand the full costs and benefits of all of these technologies, because a lot of the modeling tools are really outdated, and the modeling tools answer to every question is build a new natural gas plant. So part of this is getting new tools in place, having open stakeholder processes, which has been a little tough because of the Zoom bombing issue. So wanting to get more people involved right now is tricky, but they should continue to do that. I think it would be good for commissions, similar to what they did during the Recovery Act back back in 2009. They got, in the smart grid program, 50% cost share for utilities to install smart grid technologies of all kinds. Well, they could do that with a whole host of other distributed energy technologies and microgrids that would keep the rate recovery at 50% because the federal government would be sharing it. So I think that's one thing that they could do is really push for in a stimulus to have some cost share programs like that. So utility costs are lowered and that lowers the impact on customers. And then I also look, um, another another um, question came in about Hawaii and I reached out to the chair of the commission and he was terrific about getting back to me and they're continuing their performance-based rate stock at a pace. And not only are they looking at how is it impacting Hawaii and the consumers in Hawaii and they should have a final decision and order in December of this year. But they're already sharing that information with other commissions, other public utility commissions and staff elsewhere, because other states are looking at, you know, how do we do this? How do we ensure that the utility is actually performing in a way that helps all customers? And part of the benefit is in reduced greenhouse gas emissions, uh, reduced climate impact. So those are just a few thoughts I had. So getting to the root of both of these questions, which is, will localities and state commissions actually promote more clean solutions through and beyond this crisis? It seems like there's an optimistic answer to that question. Well, I think Jigger and I are generally optimists about the fact that we do have solutions and they're cheaper and better for everybody. And hopefully people will have the sense to implement them. Well, I mean, so what I'd say is that, remember, we already had most of the stuff in motion before. And what's happened with the reduction in electricity demand is that renewable energy were must-run plants and the coal plants have actually had to accommodate renewable energy and their costs have not gone down. In fact, their costs have gone up. And so, in fact, people are accelerating the destruction of coal plants. And they're tr- and a lot of these other uh, cases around weatherization and figuring out how do we do equity issues and all those other things are still uh, moving apace, right? There's still a lot of great, you know, research that's been done and dockets that have been opened and hearings that have been done and all that stuff. And so I, I don't, I don't see that moving in any direction than the the direction we were already moving into. And I do think it'll accelerate just because I think people, people are starting to realize this. I don't think they've quite gotten their heads around it. There are a lot of people who are optimists who think that you know, COVID's just going to go away. We're going to have a U-shaped recovery and everyone's going to be fine by July. I don't think that the vast majority of people who've really studied this believe that anymore. And as a greater majority start to recognize that this is going to be a long, drawn-out recovery, they're going to start looking for areas where there are people who are already trained, people who have already presented the evidence so good decision-making can occur. And those are largely in our areas. So... The last question was on corporate climate commitments. And 
at the beginning of this year, we had, I don't know, three or four shows in a row where some of the country or the world's largest companies were making these big sweeping commitments to reducing their emissions or the emissions of their products or developing a ton of renewable energy. And all of a sudden that momentum felt like it stopped, or at least we weren't paying attention to it. So this listener asked, how will COVID-19 impact some of those 2020 commitments because it seems to have struck at the worst possible time? Now, I've been thinking about this question because the other day I had a really long conversation with Neha Palmer, who runs energy strategy at Google. And basically, like, they're all systems go, right? I mean, they're dealing with... um, changes in electricity demand and pricing and markets, but like they have a clear goal. They want to get 24-7 renewable energy. That means actually matching the performance of data centers, you know, consumer usage with electricity production. That means investing in a lot more storage, figuring out what net comes next technologically to meet that goal. And like they're all in. So I think the bigger corporations, like a lot of the big tech firms and you know large industrial companies that have similar targets, they're still trucking ahead with this. Uh, what we saw in terms of renewable energy commitments was almost two gigawatts of deals in the first quarter of this year. Now, that will probably slow way down, of course, but still, like the first part of this year was was pretty strong in terms of activity. We saw the CEOs of Shell and BP on investor calls both say basically that their clean energy units are going to be untouched for now. And the question for me is, what about the mushy middle? What happens to these mid-sized companies in terms of capital deployment and restructuring targets? And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, Jigger. So many of the folks who've made these commitments are clients of ours in the sense that we own assets at their facilities um, or we collect their food waste or other things. And so we talk to them pretty regularly. And I think Neha's um, you know, comments resonate with most of those players. But I'll give you one anecdote. There's a very large food company that has not done a lot, but has made big commitments. And uh, the energy manager was ready to sign a deal to like, you know, have developers go in and evaluate all the rooftops, put solar on them and energy efficiency. And the the general counsel basically just, just tore, tore it apart, said, we shouldn't be agreeing to any of this stuff. I don't know why we're doing it. And the CEO was like, shut your mouth. We are going to sign this thing and we are going to get renewable energy on our roof. And I just, I had to, I had to mute the phone because I was just like laughing out loud. And um, so I think it's one anecdote, but I do think that people recognize one, that there's a lot of things that they can do that actually save money. And so it's really no regrets and that they really should be doing all the no regrets stuff. Um, while, you know, they can. I think two is that they recognize that there will literally never be a better moment than now to get this stuff done. We have more labor available. We have more, um, you know, like sort of just resources available to give these people attention. And then I think three, it really sets them up um, for the different rounds of stimulus more. The thing that people don't really recognize, I think, well, is that the way that the Main Street Lending Program and other programs work through Treasury is you actually have to have um, some of these initiatives already moving, right? These are not like DOE loan guarantee programs where you can say, we are thinking about doing sustainability, therefore give us debt to like do it. It's more like we've already done it. We've incurred this debt at 7% interest. We'd like to borrow money from the Fed at 3% to refinance this stuff out. Like that's how this works. And so in the game, you actually have to put stuff on your roof and then you can refinance it down with lower interest rates. And so like, so it doesn't make sense for you to like wait to do these things. Yeah, and I would just say from a global perspective, there are groups of corporates, uh, research organizations and EU leaders certainly that are really calling for a big green public investment for a future ready economy, they call it. And they, they really believe that you can continue all these sustainability initiatives without leaving people behind, being very inclusive and growing the economy. And they think now is as important time as any. Well, like I said, we had almost 200 questions in real time during our live show. We lumped a bunch here together that felt relevant to the news cycle, and we're going to sift through others. And we are going to have a couple more live shows coming up where you can watch us from our homes and 
we'll have the episode posted. And so you'll have the opportunity to submit more questions. And we really appreciate your interactivity with us. So let's end the show on a free electron with one last listener question, which was about recommendations for books, movies, reports on climate and energy that uh, someone with some free time in quarantine should read. First of all, free time, free time. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) But it's a great question. So Catherine, what are you reading or consuming or watching that is not from Michael Moore? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, putting aside the 100 agonizing minutes of that movie, um, I've been spending a lot of time on free webinars. There's a lot out there. Um, some of them are really helpful. Some of them are thought-provoking. I just attended one at the end of last week, the Energy Storage Grand Challenge. Uh, Department of Energy is doing kind of this very much connecting of the dots of all their energy storage programs throughout the department and trying to to be very pragmatic about developing research and development that really does attack certain use cases and becomes relevant to deployment. Uh, So I was impressed with that. Folks can go onto the DOE website and look at the Energy Storage Grand Challenge. They have a bunch more webinars coming up, and I think uh, you can ask questions on those webinars. So I think they're very informative. And then a podcast. I do not have as much time as I did uh, to listen to podcasts just because I'm not commuting all the time. So um, I found a short one, which I really like. It's called Redefining Energy, and it's Gerard Reed and Laurence Segalin who have just discussions, they interview people, and it's from more of a global perspective. So that's been helpful to me. So no Tiger King, only DOE webinars. (laughs) Oh, there's a lot of other trash I'm watching. I just didn't mention it. (laughs) Jigger, what is taking up your time? So outside of The Last Dance, which, you know, everyone's guilty pleasure these days, uh, which is the Bulls 98 series uh, season, you know, I have been listening to the uh, My Climate Journey podcast from Jason Jacobs. It's really extraordinary. He gets and the most amazing people on his podcast done 103 episodes in a year. He's launched this on May 7th. 2019, exactly a year ago, and he has 103 episodes, and and you know everything from Ken Caldera to Monolith Materials to others, and and it's really just wonderful. And he's brought an entirely new group of people from the tech community into climate, um, which is just fascinating to watch. And so I recommend everyone you know listen to the podcast series. We have Shale Khan, and I have a good interview with him on. The Interchange, where we talked a little bit more explicitly about his personal journey from tech founder into climate um, champion or someone who is talking to climate champions. And he really has brought a new kind of community into this space. So um, you you two both only listen to energy and climate podcasts during this thing? Like... I literally have no time to listen to podcasts. (laughs) I mean, the only time I listened to podcasts was on an airplane and, and I'm not in an airplane anymore. So, and, uh, you know, every free chance I get, you know, my, my son is taking up. So I, uh, you know, I don't think I'm consuming as much content as I used to. Oh no. My favorite one is staying in with Emily and Kumail. I mean, that is my favorite quarantine podcast. It's awesome. Well, I'm only listening to audio. I mean, I don't read anything anymore. I listen to audiobooks. I don't have any time. So I walk the dog. I wash the dishes. Any time I can free up. If I'm working out or something, I'm just listening to something. Um, and the show that has caught my attention that is actually very relevant to our conversation about Michael Moore is this podcast called Rabbit Hole from the New York Times. And the New York Times audio team is so good. They pulled a lot of people in from the public radio world and from specifically Radio Lab. So they there's this Radio Lab aesthetic to the documentary style reporting that they do, which obviously um we hear every day in the daily podcast. But this new show Rabbit Hole uh is hosted and reported by New York Times writer Kevin Roos and it's produced by Andy Mills, a former uh Radio Lab person. It's about this uh YouTuber named Caleb Kane who gets sucked into the uh, extreme world of YouTube misinformation. And he starts at this very innocent place and gets to a very dark place. And they ended up uncovering his entire watch history and used that as the basis of the episode to think through like how you go from a pretty innocent place into a place of very extreme views. And 
it's so well produced. The sound design is uh, the best I've heard. And since we're talking about the impact of someone like Michael Moore, who posted his film on YouTube and got 6.5 million hits and is angering a lot of people or causing confusion in the environmental movement, it is a reason why that stuff matters. It will show you that that the, the misinformation out there truly has an impact on people's lives. I want to subscribe right away. That sounds super interesting. Are you sure you're not going to be too busy on a DOE webinar? <laughs> well, thanks, everyone, for devoting your time to another episode of our show here. We appreciate the support. And I'm still continually blown away that our numbers are looking really good. We've seen an industry-wide 20% dip in podcast listening, but our numbers are staying strong. So y'all are listening. And thank you. You can give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher if you want to support the show. Um, You can also send us an email at postscriptaudio at gmail.com or just hit us up on Twitter with any show ideas or listener feedback. Um, we want to hear what you thought about the Michael Moore movie as well. You know, the more dialogue we get about that out in the public sphere, the better to really help people think through it. And uh, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are my co-hosts. Thanks to them. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. We are a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. And we will, of course, catch you next week. This is the Energy Gang. I'm Stephen Lacey. Talk to you soon. 